Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. All eyes turned in recent weeks from an impeachment trial to the machinations of the reconciliation process in Congress, driving President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. But at the same time, the president's administration has been staffing up, albeit slowly. Of the 23 cabinet-level officials requiring Senate approval, 10 have thus far been confirmed by the upper chamber, and one nominee, near a Tandon, proposed for budget director, appears to have run aground with an objection from Senator Joe Manchin and no Republican senator willing to come to the rescue. That matters because, as we all know, the Senate is evenly divided, 50-50. Personnel determines the destiny of any presidential administration, and so I'm pleased to be joined by my colleague and former Assistant Secretary of Commerce himself in the Obama administration, Steve Haro, to break down all the happenings in Joe Biden's Department of Human Resources. Steve Haro, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. Always, always wonderful to be with you. <laughs> you as well. Well, how about it, Steve? Biden is well behind his two immediate predecessors in confirmations. The confirmation process is somewhat out of his control in the Senate, but he's also well behind in nominations for Senate confirmable positions, which is completely within his control. Does the pace of the administration staffing up give you any concern? Uh, it doesn't, but I, I do want to first point out that this has not been a year similar to other January and Februarys of, of a new administration, correct? We had an interesting transition. And so, yes, where progress has been with past administrations, Biden administration stands a little bit behind, but they didn't face the type of unique challenges that came with transition. And the fact that the Senate, even though it convened on January 3rd, wasn't really organized until the mid to late 20s of January. And so just, and, and we had weird difficulties of, of the transition in November and December. Uh, we had the unfortunate realities of what happened on January 6th, which also slowed down progress. And so we have to remember, we're not a patient society. Uh, first and foremost, with anything. <laughs> we are right? not, no. And anything that we want to be able to do and accomplish, even if we set a you know time goal to it, it is always going to take longer than we think it is. And this is no different. And we have some extenuating circumstances. So I understand folks' concern that the cabinet is not fully filled out by now, which it wasn't in previous administrations. Yes, we are behind, uh, you know, in terms of where Trump was at this point, where Obama was at this point, where George W. Bush was at this point. But I, I do feel, and we can go in granularly about kind of where we're at with individuals and whatnot, but I, I do feel that we are on the precipice of a snowball effect and that we are, we're, we're back to work. As you correctly pointed out, we're through impeachment. We have you know plenty of floor time set. We're learning to walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, you know, So we've got a few nominees on the floor next week while also dealing with the budget reconciliation bill. I do think the pace is going to pick up and we will be there soon with a full cabinet, a sub-cabinet, and then those other nominees will also snowball. Well, Steve, it, uh, and I, I want to get your perspective because you, yeah. you have an extraordinarily unique perspective. You've been an administration official. You've been a chief of staff to two senators. So you've seen the process uh, both inside the administration and inside the Senate. When do you consider an administration fully staffed? And, and when do you anticipate the Biden administration will get there? 
Well, the reality is that there is a fully staffed in administration is almost kind of like full employment for the country. You know, you're never going to have 100 percent right. uh, of, of folks working 100 percent of the time. And that's just that's going to be true with with administrative appointments. Right. I mean, you have in the political appointee world, there's a, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere like just shy of forty four hundred folks, one thousand two hundred and fifty ish of which are Senate confirmed. Now that includes judges and, and, and ambassadors and whatnot. And so what we're looking at in terms of the Senate confirmed assistant secretaries, deputy secretaries, cabinet secretaries, you know, we're looking at between, I, I want to say it's like six to 700 folks. You're always going to have people rolling off and rolling on. Right. Uh, so I, I, I think an uneducated guess about this is a kind of full, full employment for uh, an administrative appointee list should hover around 80 to 85%. Interesting. When we get there, it, it, it's going to be a while. Now, fortunately, as I mentioned, we have a lot more political appointees that aren't Senate confirmed. Those are the Schedule C appointments. And that pace of getting those folks into their offices and getting them to work has has been at a very fast clip. People are in there. They're working. Yes, they're overwhelmed because they still don't have all the people that they need. But that is that that pace is moving faster than the Senate confirmed positions are. Well, speaking of that sort of next tier, I mean, these cabinet level nominees, or if they're not well-known names, they're, they're getting to be well-known names and they get most of the press attention. But as, uh, as you allude, and as we can attest, a lot of policy is implemented by deputy secretaries, assistant secretaries, and then they're the administrators at agencies like the EPA and CMS, where we do a lot of work. Who in that next tier of administration official do you have your eye on? So definitely Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Odema, who has been reported out of committee. We can see him coming up to the floor uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, to get him over to Treasury to be working with our Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen. Definitely looking at Shakita brooks Lashore over at CMS. Very critical position. I mean, you know, folks folks often think that uh, uh, the DOD is, is where the government spends the most money, but it's really over at HHS uh, because of Medicare. And CMS is the bulk of that with the with the mandatory spendings programs, yeah. And CMS is the bulk of that. And, uh, and Shakita Brooks-Lashur's name has been put forward. Uh, they're going to start processing that. Highly talented individual, uh, but we're hoping we can get that done in March and, and get her to Baltimore as soon as possible. Executive drive, as I recall. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> spend, a few, spend a few afternoons there. Yep. Well, Steve, try as we might, you know, it's hard to ignore a near $2 trillion spending bill working its way through Congress. Uh, COVID relief cleared the budget committee this week. One Democrat voted no, no Republican support. It's on the House floor today uh, where Speaker Pelosi has about a half dozen votes to spare. Does she have the votes? And more importantly, what do you think she's promising folks to get those votes? So I do believe she has the votes. Now, as, as, as we record this together, Dean, it, it, is, it is a Friday morning with the vote intended to be on the floor later this evening. A lot can change in, in, in a day. And, and as you know, the biggest news that came you know, prior to us, uh, you and I sitting down, was last night the Senate parliamentarian ruled that if a bill comes over with minimum wage in it, it will not be allowed to stay in the Senate version of the bill. That was that was a blow 
It's it's a bird dropping, Steve. It's, it's a, a bird, bird dropping. dropping. It's a bird dropping, which is the the absolute technical term for that. <laughs> uh, that 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 was a huge blow for many, uh, and not just progressives. Dean, to be perfectly frank, now we're still trying to figure out what the implications of that are for the vote count. The minimum wage to fifteen dollars by twenty twenty five will stay in the House version of the bill. So folks will be able to vote on that tonight or tomorrow when they when they put it in. It will then obviously go to the Senate and and get dropped, uh, and then the fate is a little bit more uncertain. So I think to your question of you know what is the speaker promised? It's well we get to vote on the minimum wage today, and then we're going to vote on a separate minimum wage on its own sometime in the very near future. What that looks like, uh, when that is, still remains to be seen. But I don't I don't feel like there has been it also just from. You know, talking around with folks, it does not feel like individual deals have been made with individual members on some type of policy proposal they have to be able to get a vote today or tomorrow when they do vote on the budget. Yeah, I think what I've heard is a lot of members just, we're going to grit our teeth, we're going to swallow hard, and uh, we're going to have more participation uh, in in the next bills that uh, that come down the pipe, which is right up there with, uh, we'll fix it in conference. Uh, yeah. And, 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 you know, and we also saw, you know, the reemergence of earmarks this week, right? Both in the appropriations process and for, you know, a future infrastructure bill. And, you know, having worked in Congress during when we were earmarking that that's, that's not insignificant. It is not. And, and so we'll, we'll see, you know, what effect that has on, on members and their ability to, to affect change within the legislation. You know, some of the biggest complaints that we've heard over the last decade is how uh, whatever side you're on, Republican or Democrat, is, uh, you know, how legislating is so leadership driven, you know, top down, not bottom up. Well, you know, member directed projects, uh, aka earmarks, sometimes you need to use three words when you can only use one. (laughs) Uh, Those, that's bottom up. Right. And so we'll see how this changes the process this year. Right. It it gives it gives members uh, skin in the game on a bill that they might not otherwise be disposed to vote for. But, uh, you know, That's right. not only getting the potential for uh, support for your district, support for your state, uh, voting against a bill, you also risk the headline of, of having voted against something that's that's good for your district or good for your state. So it's a bit of a carrot and a stick. That's correct. And, and look, for all the, the, the demagoguing, vilifying uh, that has you know turned earmark into a four-letter word over the years. At the end of the day, we have to remember that these members of Congress were elected to represent districts and states from which they know, uh, and I I do believe they know their districts and their states better than some uh, some person you know working out of a federal building on Independence Avenue. And I don't want to take away the quality of the work that that civil servant is doing. But in terms of what a district needs, that's part of what the member needs to be able to articulate. And they should have, they should have say in how that money is spent. And that is the clear rational case for earmarks, Steve. The political reality, though, is uh, Republicans are not going to be able to resist this as a political cudgel uh, with which to uh, club their colleagues across the aisle. I think that if Democrats can withstand a bit of bad press on this, they'll get to a point where these member-directed projects actually end up in spending bills and they can sort of get lift off here. But do you think they can get through this initial 
political hit they're going to take for for being supportive of earmarks? 60-40. Yeah. 60-40, yes. Because uh, you are right about the cudgel. You just are. And that, you know, we still have, we, uh, I should probably qualify that with the Democrats, uh, caucus, the Democratic caucus. We still have a number of, you know, quote unquote moderates serving in, in, in districts that, that President Trump won in both 16 and 20 that are concerned about the cudgel. They just are. And as you've already alluded to, you know, we have a very, you know, finite margin for error with regard to votes. And so will these folks be able to sustain the, the cudgel from Republicans? And, you know, you're just a, you know, tax and spend liberal, you're, you know, pork and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And, and are, are they willing to take that initially, hoping that that is not something that sticks with them come election time that people do realize, okay, my member is looking out for the district, they're bringing infrastructure projects here uh, to allow for the, accept, the accepting of changing the rules and allowing for earmarks. I don't know yet, and that's why I'm not very bullish on this, but I still want to give it a 60-40 chance right. that we're able to do this this year. I think that's about right. Let, let me ask you uh, one more, how long can the Democrats hold out? And that's uh, where you alluded on the uh, parliamentarian's ruling on the minimum wage dropping out of reconciliation. This is not going to be the last reconciliation bill. And of course, what you heard from progressives, uh, what you've heard from Republican members when uh, when their provisions uh, got dropped out or left into reconciliation, the parliamentarian's ruling is just an advisory opinion. And Vice President Harris can overrule her as president of the Senate. This is an unelected bureaucrat uh, making decisions that ought to be made by our elected leaders. I have to say, President Biden is 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 pretty strong in saying respect the Senate process, but and and I do think Democrats will swallow hard on this. Uh, they'll move forward and and they'll get this they'll get this COVID relief bill done. But when it comes to climate, when it comes to infrastructure, when it comes to taxes, how long can this adherence to Senate procedure and the Senate filibuster hold out? Rules are rules. I feel pretty confident that you are not going to see a serious member of Congress on the Democratic side take issue with the ruling of the parliamentarian. We have to have refs. And the Senate parliamentarian is a very talented, talented ref. Yes, she is. Uh, she has made a decision. It has been accepted. It has been respected by both the White House and leadership on, on both sides of the Capitol. Uh, yes, it's disappointing, but it's what it is. And so, you know, we we accept the ruling and we move on. I'd be very shocked and surprised to to see uh, again serious players in in leadership and otherwise come out and and say we need to fire the parliamentarian. I just don't see that happening, Dean. Right. It's happened in the past, though. You take somebody like it has. Bob Dove was fired by both Bob Dole and George Mitchell. <laughs> it has, uh, but. It sets a bad precedent, and, and you know, and, and and just as we we were all saying on January sixth, that the vice president did not have the constitutional authority, you know, to overturn the election. Right. Rules are rules, and so we lost one here. Great point. Democrats lost one here. Great point. And so let's let's you know, let's uh, let's pick ourselves up. Let's move on. Let's find another way to do it, uh, because the minimum wage it is important to raise the minimum wage in my in my estimation and in Democrats' eyes. We'll find another way to do it. 
And meanwhile, let's get this bill across the finish line. Well, Steve, to that end, Q1 of this year has been consumed with COVID relief. Uh, that probably gets done mid to mid to late March. Democrats still run the show. White House, Senate, and House. So we've we've thrown out a few things here: climate, taxes, infrastructure. What's in your crystal ball for the spring and the remainder of the first half of this year? So crystal ball, you know, based on conversations that uh, I've been fortunate to have with some members this week and last week, is that there will be a desire to pivot pretty quickly to the next reconciliation package, which is both climate and infrastructure, and kind of a, a hybrid of those because. Infrastructure will take on uh, a, a climate tenor, uh, you know, climate resilience, because that bill will take longer. You know, it, this this COVID relief package has has a self imposed deadline of March fourteenth because that's when extended UI benefits right run out. Absent that March fourteenth deadline, reconciliation usually is a much longer process than what we've seen here uh, happen. And so I think we'll see a more traditional reconciliation process with this next bill, which is why they want to get started on it right away. Because if we if we pivot to that, say on March fifteenth, it, it won't be done within six weeks. It, it will probably take you know upwards of two to three months to get that going. Uh, and so that will be the major the, the the major focus in my in my estimation. And then we'll also move to criminal justice reform, election reform bills. Uh, you know the George Floyd Justice Act. And, and, and others like that. I also see um, a potential immigration play uh, with regard to the DREAM Act and DACA kids and agricultural workers. And then we'll see. And then we'll see. We'll see. Then we'll see. We'll see. And, and, then, and then we'll also be starting the regular appropriations process. You know, now, now that we are going to make an attempt to put earmarks back into appropriations, we've got that process to start as well. Well, Steve, we shall see. And when we do, I hope you'll come back and join me to uh, break it all down. Steve Haro, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thank you, Dean.